that that URL will exist like somewhere, but it will not be the Coinbase competitor, whatever that it, that it is today. Dougal's in Zuckerberg's metaverse, you don't even have URLs, so there's no need for crypto.com. Do you have IRLs? <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Good to see you again. (laughs) Yeah, we got some in-person time this week, and there were so many fun things that happened about that. One, it's been a while, but two, you're like, oh gosh, I'm reading this incredible book, and I was like, Hey, what what's it about? And you said, I can't tell you. I still refuse to tell you. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what the book is, but you don't even read the don't even read the synopsis. Just read it. Why? This makes no sense to me. I don't. It's just how I roll. Like I don't. I don't. I, as I told you, I don't watch trailers before I go see movies. I don't read the synopsis because what happens is they end up they end up telling you like a detail. And with this book in particular, I only read nonfiction. And so this is like the first piece of fiction that did not start with Harry Potter and the dot, dot, dot <laughs> that I've read in like about a decade or so. But for the first, I don't know how long, but bit of it, I didn't know what it was about. And it was actually kind of interesting figuring out what it was about. And so that, that's where with this one in particular, I think it's more fun to go along with the story, because if I tell you what it's about, you'll the first like bit of it, like won't even won't be as interesting. So do, do you, I at least get the title? No, not even. Yeah, you get the title. It's called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Okay, Invisible Life, Addie LaRue. That's good. You know, that reminds me of this uh, fascinating, it's actually uh, nonfiction, like scientific research book I'm reading on kind of how to better control your mind to improve the way you live. Any interest in that? Always. What's it called? Okay. Yeah, you don't get to know the title. Oh, so I get to know what it's about, but not the title. (laughs) Yeah, it's like Jeopardy. Right. It's book Jeopardy. I'm just going to keep reading books until I, <laughs> you know, it must like be this one. Seven years. You're going to be like, hey, is this the one? <laughs> All right. Enough of that nonsense. What's uh, <laughs> What do you want to talk about investing wise? There are some, uh, there's some, a few like crypto news stories that I think we might be able to string together. You want to hop into that? Yeah, man. I had, gosh. I bid uh, six fifty million for Staples Center, and I lost out to Crypto.com for fifty million. Just throw in the extra fifty. Man, I need that fifty to live on. Unfortunately, so you know how many? Because there were some good stories going around this week of how many defunct naming rights um, have happened, like uh, Enron, the Houston mm. Astros. I think used to play in Enron Arena or something like that. Is this is crypto.com still the name of the Los Angeles Lakers home in 20 years from now? I think is a fun oh. thing to ponder. Um, well, I'm I would bet that oh, actually, you know, this is this is a bold statement because I was going to say crypto.com won't even be an organization in 20 yeah. years, let alone it having the naming rights. But crypto.com very well might be an organization, but it will not be. This it'll be a different organization. Yeah, it'll be di- like it. That that URL will exist like somewhere, but it will not be the Coinbase competitor, whatever that it that it is today. Dougal's in Zuckerberg's metaverse. You don't even have URLs, so there's no need for Crypto.com. Do you have IRLs? <laughs> I see what you did there, though. 
How meta is that? <laughs> that was one thing that happened. Another thing that happened is, were you following this Constitution DAO or Constitution DAO story? A little bit. Give the people some background. I got pulled the funniest tweet that, that happened this week. It relates to that. I'll drop some knowledge. So Sotheby's the auction house. There was a widower who used to own one of 13 copies of the Constitution. One of the things I learned this week that's separate from the whole crypto thing we're about to get into is that there are multiple copies of the Constitution. <laughs> like that, yeah. that I didn't know. But anyway, so apparently there are 13 copies of the Constitution. There was a, there was a woman that owned one of them. She bought it back in 1988 for like $160,000, $180,000, something like that. Seriously? So, yeah. So anyway, so it's time to auction this thing off. So Sotheby's goes to auction it off. And there was a lot of anticipation around this auction. And a DAO or a decentralized autonomous organization was formed to bid on this thing. And this is called Constitution DAO, Constitution DAO. Yep. And so what they did is they used smart contracts built on blockchain, got a whole bunch of people to say like, Let's buy this thing. Let's buy the Constitution. In a week, they raised $40 million to be, I think their goal was something like 20. And they raised $40 million in a week to bid on this thing. And so people were like, we got this. We got this. Crypto taking over the world. Mm -hmm. They did not got this. So one. <laughs> Two is who they lost to was like, they, they've been calling it the ultimate troll because it yeah. was Ken Griffin of Citadel. And yeah. for those that haven't been following, well, either high frequency trading in general, or this year, the meme stock craze is Citadel is one of the big players, if not the biggest player in the high frequency trading game. And so if you go to payment for order flow, which we've talked about, like what's behind Robinhood and yep. other organizations too, when they drop commissions, they make money off payment for order flow and Citadel is on the back end of that. And so Citadel has basically been like the villain of 2021 for um for those that are part of the meme stock craze for those that are part of just like the the individual the Dow people taking over like the, world. the yeah. Dow people yeah. yeah yeah the Dow the Dow people yeah. and so anyway so Ken Griffin wins this thing one of the reasons that he won because he bid more so it went for like 43 million so that's <laughs> yeah that. well because it was but, public what constitutional Dow had it, yeah right? exactly so, so he was just like yeah. he's like I'll do like 40 million one penny you know um <laughs> but the other the other reason that was stated by Sotheby's was they said that even if Constitution Dow had enough money up front, that it actually cost a decent amount of money to maintain the Constitution over time. And they didn't have confidence that this organization that raised money now would be able to take care of the Constitution over time. That was something I'd never thought about. But that, that was one I of mean, the reasons that Sotheby's also like, dropped it. Yeah, I mean, what do you have to do? Like switch the light it's under? or Febreze? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, take care of the Constitution. Yeah, so here's the uh, my favorite tweet of the week. It's from Ivan the K. It says, uh, "Ken Griffin amends the Constitution, <laughs> adds payment for order flow, order flow to Bill of Rights." I mean, I like the idea of Constitution DAO for certain endeavors. Um, it's cool that you can easily almost build like an organization with some standard rules around how money is processed, and that's something that crypto does really well and i think we'll see a lot more of it and and the the what of this isn't like all that novel i mean you because you could say uh indiegogo and like gofundmes have been able to raise a lot of money in a short period of time True. too but the how is very novel to your point like the ease at which you can do this with crypto and the decentralized nature of it, like the it just it was so fast so much money so fast and the automation that sits on the back end. And so everyone's getting their money back minus gas fees. 
Um, but it's it, it's it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool yeah. use case. Well, like the Indiegogos of the world, and I mean all that stuff. I think they have a pretty impressive track record. But I haven't heard of anything in the range of forty million dollars. And I think the reason people trusted that sum of money in the DAO space is because that it really is based on clear established rules there's no human involved in actually pushing a button and having yeah. something flow somewhere so can you also can you imagine putting up an indiegogo for buying the constitution like there there's something to like yeah, that use case it's like it, it's, it's kind of like change.org right i think but meets like an indiegogo <laughs> but with technology on the back end that makes it a lot easier like that's yeah. the that's the difference in something like this pretty cool definitely all right, third item that has to do with crypto. And of course, this is happening in Florida. <laughs> here's, here's what I think. Okay, so high level before I even state this. Um, so back in, here's some history context. Back in 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto yes. came out with this nine-page paper, which described how Bitcoin would work, right? No one's known who, who Satoshi was, who Satoshi is. Was it one person, multiple people? Who the heck knows? I'll tell you this, though. So where Satoshi is not is in Florida. That's like, kind of <laughs> that was my only conclusion, too. I was like, I don't know where Satoshi is, but it's anywhere but Florida. It could <laughs> exactly. be Costa Rica. <laughs> it could be Argentina. It could be Africa. Anywhere. It could be Antarctica. It's not Florida. Literally anywhere. When you see a headline that starts Florida, man, it never ends with creates Bitcoin. Creates <laughs> Bitcoin. <laughs> That's not the. Um, so the reason why we're bringing up Florida here is because there's this uh, this trial that's going on that just started where this guy five years ago named Craig Wright, he started claiming that he's Satoshi. And it's like, I created Bitcoin. I created Bitcoin. So he claimed that people, no one believed him, including Skippy and Dougals who were saying you're in Florida. So you didn't, but <laughs> no one really believed him, but there's one group of people that want to believe him. And that's the family of this guy, David Kleiman. So David Kleiman died back in 2013 and the family is saying that our boy David was your business partner. Yep. And so if you are Satoshi and Satoshi has 64 billion Bitcoin, then we have half of that. Uh, let me correct one thing. So okay. Satoshi has 1 million Bitcoin, the equivalent of about 64 billion oh, dollars. 64 and billion dollars. Yeah. A fascinating thing about this piece is the David Kleiman camp claims to have proof of collaboration and like writing the code and everything else that should come out in this trial. So there's going to be no mystery around this here shortly. Now, the guy that founded Cardero, um, Charles Hotch Hotchkinson, I think it is, real, really smart guy, really expert in coding. He claims a little, I forget who he thinks created it, but he uh, has run some of the code through like special coding software that recognizes like how other individuals code and thinks that there's a pretty solid match based on that forensic forensic evidence i'd call it so that's another interesting twist here people even if this turns out to be say approved by the courts if the way the code is written doesn't agree with that i'm sure there will be more folklore around this yeah at the end of this as you said there's going to be something whether or not Satoshi unmasked is like kind of the, the thing that's been thrown around. That may not happen during this, but something will come out. At the very least, we'll say, Florida man, you didn't do it. Like, yeah. I, 
we can prove our initial hypothesis. I think it's just fascinating because if they are able to prove that these two individuals created it, the final straw is they have the wallet that has the million bitcoins. I mean, like if David Wright has that, I'd say that's about as good a proof as anything else. If you can transfer even like a fraction of a Bitcoin out, it would like it would prove that the the, the, uh, the naysayers that aren't just leaning on the fact that he's in Florida to say that it's not him. They're saying if it is you, if you did create Bitcoin, like transfer one little yeah. sousson of yeah. a Bitcoin right somewhere. That's really easy to prove, actually. Yeah, um, you would think. Who knows? Because you could you could publicly state like I'm taking this the first wallet ever created or and I'm transferring 10 pennies elsewhere to skip to the Skippy and Dougal's wallet, right? <laughs> oh, I like where this is going. Okay. All right. What's what's next in your fishbowl? I jumped into a podcast. Actually, let me tie up something from last week. Last week, I think you did a really nice breakdown of the problem with inflation is the basically demand side rather than the supply side. Wall Street Journal had a, a really nice uh, breakdown this week where they simply plotted retail and food services um, spending in terms of the monthly change in that area. And gosh, we're at, we're at like 10 year highs, Dougals. So people are spending almost 300 or almost $650 billion more than they were previously on retail and food services. It like just in really this year in 2021. Yeah. It just really tied a nice bow on the fact that you're saying the supply or the demand is the problem. And there's so much money out there chasing goods uh, because yeah. this chart is unbelievable. Like it just, we're at all times highs and people spending money on retail stuff and food services. So of course that stuff costs more money. And it's not necessarily money they don't have. But as we talked about before, it's money they won't have because no well, one's working. Yeah, I mean, my favorite term post-COVID is revenge spending, right? Everyone's talking about how you've felt cooped up and uh, hopefully your bank balance is a little higher than it has been. But you're just excited to get on that vacation that you felt like you couldn't go on last year or to see friends or to do whatever. It, the money is less of a factor, I think, because it's reset people's frame of mind a little bit around what's important in life. But I do think I do think there will be a, a boomerang effect, and not all of this will be good if people always continue this revenge spending piece uh, too long. Agreed. There's going to be some kind of reckoning. So the next thing I wanted to talk about a little is another um, another Dougal's thing. I remember almost a year ago you were pitching commodities. Still own, still own. Yeah. So what are the commodities that you're you own these days? And and to clarify, I. I own stocks in companies whose prices are based like largely on commodities, not the commodities themselves, but uranium, aluminum, and copper are the three main ones. And then I have a, I have like one commodities fund and a, an agriculture fund. Yeah. So I did uh, a similar play back when oil prices went negative, whatever that was 18 months ago, I bought big into BP and or not BP, Exxon and Royal Dutch Shell, right? So I listened to a podcast with Bill Brewster and Arnold Vandenberg. It's a, a few weeks old, but he did something very similar to me and you, actually. He dove deep into commodities, thought it was a nice value investor, 
investment play. Um, and that's a fascinating podcast if you want to uh, dive in. But I, I wanted to loop that back up because he is all on commodities, Dougal's uh, just like you. And he actually thinks there's like a, a five to 10 year really positive run uh, in the commodities markets that they're undersupplied and the demand is just going to be there as we leave um, the COVID space. But it, it does seem like there's there's something in that. I mean, my uranium piece is be- because of nuclear energy, I think. And then you were laughing at me. I was like, we got to build a bunch of stuff and you need copper. Yeah. And so like, you know, oh, but who, knows where, who knows where, uh, where it actually ends up, but it doesn't, it seems probable. Like it's logical that that's going to occur, but that also when things feel that logical, it also seems like that might be the least likely thing to occur. So I don't, I don't know. It's never a straight path, right? It's always a turbulent yeah. road. I want to talk about drawdowns in a second, but the main reason I want to bring up Arnold Vandenberg is because I want to throw out a couple of quotes from him. So my favorite from this podcast was where he says, if a value investor has the courage, the conviction, and the belief to wait it out, and by wait it out, he means a downturn or a mispricing event, then you can make money and that's how you get rich, right? His, his point here is simply, it takes a lot of courage and conviction and you don't know what the timing is going to look like, but if you have that fortitude to get through those things, you're going to be in great shape. The other um, quote he had relating to value investing that I just think is so true is he says, value investing does not appeal to the masses. If it did, you would never be able to buy a bargain. So this is one of those, even if you put the writing on the wall of a secret get rich formula, it's actually like too hard for your average person because they just aren't wired that way to follow that, to sit through the chaos and the pain that comes with that uh, to actually get rich. I, hmm, okay. You're, you're thinking <laughs> over there. I know. It's because I, I feel like those statements are true for investing in stocks. Like that doesn't feel, that doesn't feel like a, a value investing truth. I say the Probably. same thing, right? If you, you said we're going to talk about drawdowns, same thing if you, if you invested in Amazon back in the day, like there's all these same with Netflix, right? And those aren't value investments. And so you just have to be able to stomach the downturns um, or have belief when the market doesn't, right? And I think that's true of all stocks that you're holding for the long term. I think that's very fair. So let's talk Amazon, right? So um, IPO'd in 1997, $18 a share. In uh, September 2001, it was down 93%. It, and, and it doesn't stop there. In uh, 2016, it was down 45%. In 2018, it was down 56%. Like the people that say you buy something like Amazon and just, you know, go drink Mai Tais on the beach, it, that's not how it happens. When your investment's down 93%, you're freaking out. And you're saying this company isn't right for me. And what was I ever thinking buying it at eighteen dollars a share? I mean, unless you go to the beach and never like don't don't take your phone. <laughs> and don't have a phone. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't check the news. Just go to the beach, fall asleep like Rip Van Winkle, get up in like thirty years. That's the only way. But otherwise, agreed. I mean, what do you do when something's falling apart like that? Like, what do you do? That's a it tests your conviction. I mean, that's the Arnold Vandenberg quote. Okay, so here's where the quiz comes with drawdowns. I bet you're pretty good at this, but we're going to go decade, decade by decade. We're going to talk S&P 500, and you're going to give me an estimate for the drawdown that happened in that decade um, in, in percentage terms. Cool? Yeah, So, but to be clear, so we're, we're defining drawdown as from peak to trough. Or it's yep. not, or is it, okay. All right. Peak to trough. Okay. So 1970s. 
That's a crazy guess. No, it's about 45%. 75 is like... Wait, from peak to trough? Yeah. Okay. 1980s. 35%. 30. 1990s. 25%. In that range, yeah. I'm looking at a chart that... Call it... Yeah, call it 25. 2000s. 60%. And a little under. 55%. Yeah, so you have two massive drops here. The peak to trough from like 99 to 03 is about 45%. Then the peak to trough from 2007 to 2009 is 50%. Tough decade (laughs) on the drawdowns piece. And how about 2010 to 2020? 35%. I think it was last year. 20%. Peak to trough last year was only 20%. I'll double check my. I'll double check this. That doesn't uh, sound right. Graph I'm looking at, but um, yeah, that's the numbers I have in front of me anyway. Okay. What What's crazy about that, right? Is forty plus percent is not that uncommon, and really the uncommon piece here is like the 1990s and 2010 to 2020. More commonly, you should be looking at thirty to fifty percent drawdown with the S and P 500 on a 10 year basis. And so get ready, get ready, players. That's right. And and you're talking about the S&P 500, like you're talking about the market. So going, going back to the Amazon piece for, for individual stocks, it's a, it's a much bigger roller coaster. Yep, absolutely. All right. What's in your fishbowl? I talk too much. I have uh, this blog post by Fred Wilson. Uh, Fred Wilson's a partner at Union Square Ventures in New York City. Uh, So it's a VC firm. And he had this really, I thought it was a, a different view because we talk about the bubble a good amount, right? A different view on the bubble from the side of the venture capital uh, investments. And the name of this is Seed Rounds uh, at $100 million post money. And it's on his yeah. blog, avc.com. Uh, and so for those that don't know, $100 million post money, what that means in the VC world is once you invest in the company, the, what's the value of the company after you count the money that was invested in? So that's what post money is. and. $100 million valuation for a seed round is out of control. The seed round is the first amount of money that comes in for a company. And as, uh, as Fred says here, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give it like a few tiny attributes that Fred throws out or important attributes that Fred throws out here. So seed round, there's basically no tangible indicator of success. So this is when you have yeah. an idea. It's an idea and maybe some, some smart people, right? But it's exactly. like... There's no product, there's no revenue, there's nothing. It's there, there's an idea. Exactly, exactly. So, so there's no tangible indicator of success. It's a high failure rate. Uh, what Fred Wilson said here is it's 50% or so end up going to zero from seed round. High dilution ends up coming. Fred says about two thirds of the stock ends up getting diluted, of that investment ends up getting diluted by exit. Uh, and I can, from in my experience, from uh, from when I've been an employee at startups, I usually use something that's around 50% from the original stock that I get until something happens. And so, and that's more series A, which is after seed. And so two thirds makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. And then the last piece is there's a power law of distribution to outcomes. And so what that means is you're going to have monster, like a monster hit or a couple monster hits, and then the long, long tail, right? Many of which might be failure. So that's the power law distribution. So he puts all this out here to say, that it's kind of hard to figure out how you're going to make money if you're deploying capital at $100 million post. That's, that, that's what, what he's stating. Uh, and he started, he's played around with, a, with like a little spreadsheet model 
just to throw um, throw some thoughts behind that. And one of the things that comes out of it is you have to believe that your top investment will be worth $10 billion based on the assumptions you made to make any money. And that's right? crazy. And you have to believe your top investment will be worth $100 billion to have like a very good outcome, right? Like a, like a really good outcome. And so that's interesting by itself. And then someone uh, responded, he tweeted that post out and someone responded to his, his tweet with a couple facts that I'll throw out, which, which is a, a really nice addition to this. So here's the tweet. Between January 2010 and December 2019, 166 tech startups went public. And you basically, if you're going to be worth $10 billion or more, you're, you're likely going to be public. That's not always the case, right? But you're likely going to be public. And so 166 tech startups went public. Yeah. Based on those 166, two are at a trillion dollars or more. That's Tesla and Facebook. Four are at $100 billion or more. So going back to Fred Wilson's, you have to believe $100 billion to have a very, very good outcome. Four companies have done it. That's mm -hmm. Shopify, uh, ServiceNow, Atlassian, and Square. 48 have been $10 billion or more. So of the 166, and so 166 went public, the number that's not in here is how many seed fundings there were. So the, it doesn't say how many seed fundings there were, which I did like a quick Google search and couldn't quite find it, but there are like thousands a year, like when you have yeah. frothy markets like this, right? Oh yeah. So the 48 of $10 billion or more is like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. Um, so it's, it's just a, people are giving away money is they're lighting the money on fire throwing into that furnace is effectively what we're looking at here absolutely can i ask a stupid question about that dilution piece because i yeah. worked in the startup world so like you effectively mean that if you came in at series a they're going to end up issuing more shares to dilute your total holding is that yeah, what you're talking about there exactly and so, oh, yeah. who has the authority to do that is it only the major majority holder uh, or board, holders basically but yeah, okay i mean okay. yeah so so the to give you an example of the mechanics let's say you join as a series a at, at the series a round and you get one percent of the company let's yeah. say then when you raise that series b the board will say we're going to issue another one million shares right yep, yep um so the board votes on that and then once that comes out after that series b your one percent might now be 0.9 percent and then exactly it, you know and yeah. then you'll do series c and then okay that's how exactly. i thought but that's helpful yeah. for me. Thank you. Yeah. So this is, I mean, it, it's indicative of the same thing that we're seeing in the public stock market, but it, it's just that the math doesn't make any sense. Like it, 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 there, there isn't a way unless there's one way. If Kathy Wood somehow is right <laughs> about the fact that we have another, what did she say? Like 17 years of a, of a bull market. We, we're, we're like in the longest running of all time. And we have another couple decades to go. <laughs> that is the way. In which this makes sense. So I'm going to tell a joke. I'm going to do a massive caveat. I don't recommend shorting stocks. I don't. This is we're having fun with this. I have a few bucks in this. Here's what the inverse ETF on Kathy Woods holding has done since it launched about, I think it's 10 days ago at this point. It is up 8.5%. Ride that all the way to the bank, Deagles. Uh, it reminds me of that TikTok we listened to. It's like, here's how you turn a milli into a billy or whatever, <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah, that yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, extrapolate that 8.5%. <laughs> Making money. All right, can I dive into my fishbowl? Please do. I want you to fill in the blank. This is not investing related. 
Heavy rain and flooding in southern Egypt has forced blank out of hiding places, sending more than 500 people to hospitals with blank stings, according to state-run media. Scorpions. You got it. Are you really? So, yeah, if you're looking for something to be thankful for on on this Thanksgiving week, be happy you're not in southern Egypt right now having scorpions rush out of their hiding places to sting you. Isn't that terrifying, man? Yeah, that is absolutely <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> I had oh. a, the other day, like a middle of the day, I'm on a Zoom and a cricket came into my office. <laughs> and it like terrible. It r- ruined my whole afternoon. Let alone if that thing were a scorpion, I would have like already sold the house, like been, <laughs> been in a different state. Well, and with uh, with hospital levels in certain parts of the country being near capacity with COVID stuff, man, we can't ha- we can't handle these five hundred oh, people being sent the with scorpion stings. Yeah. All right, can I give you a quiz? Oh, I'm ready. All right, fish bowl quiz. This it's it's a couple different quizzes if we're being honest, and they're based around it's a your international knowledge. Okay, so global knowledge index is what I'm testing. I'm worldly. That's what people always say. They always say Skippy is worldwide. Yep. All right. Do you want to start off with stock market returns or GDP? Those are the two quizzes. Ooh, let's go GDP. I feel like that should be easier. Okay. So in 1995, can you name, and bonus points for in order, but can you name the highest GDP countries in the world uh is this like a top five or yeah top five countries ranked by gdp 1995 let's go let's go the u.s japan the united kingdom and france germany okay you got you got all five not in order but, but you got all five the order is u.s japan germany france uk but you got all five. That's, that's okay. impressive. Great work. 2020, top five. Ooh, all right. U.S., China, <laughs> the European Union. <laughs> you, you're, always to, you're always trying to throw the EU in there. Nah, bro. Gosh, I have no idea on number three. Um, I don't know. What's number three? Uh, number three is the former number two, so Japan. Okay. And then you I get thought Germany. they had taken more of a fall than that. Oh, but this is GDP. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So U.S., China, Japan, Germany, India. So you get a China and India basically creeped up, kicked France and the U.K. to six and seven. Yeah. Uh, China back in 1995 was eight. India was 14. See, I was trying to figure out where, uh, like, if India would get to the top five. And then I thought Japan had fallen a little more than number three. Helpful. That's good. Okay. Yeah. There's this, uh, I, I find it to be pretty cool animation of that the Lowy Institute put together. Uh, we should throw it out on the, on the Twitter. That just shows like year by year from 1995 through today and a couple years in the future based on predictions, just how countries in the top 20 have kind of shifted around. Pretty interesting stuff. All right, stock returns. Are you ready? Stock, this is returns. Okay. Over a certain time period? I'll give you, I'll, I'll, right. I'll give you the deets. Okay, so... You sent over to me this report uh, that's that's from the GFD, uh, the Global Financial Global Financial Data. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Global Financial Data, which it's 
I got confused because that doesn't sound like an institution. It sounds like data, but apparently we didn't get too now, like six years ago, I was trying to pull some reporting and everyone kept being like source was global financial data and you'd like Google it. And it was so generic that it'd be like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had a really hard time finding this entity because uh, it's more like, from what I could tell, it's more like a few individuals rather than like a big whole uh, corporation. So anyway. Yeah, global financial data. We can get some product marketing on that, but that's fine. Yeah. They do their thing. So this is like a 200-some page report that goes through 25 countries uh, and a couple, I don't know, like a global kind of indicators, like it looks at like rest of world outside of US and Europe and stuff. Yeah. Um, we're going to ignore that. We're going to ignore world, Europe, and rest of US. Uh, we're just going to look at the, the countries, 25 countries they lay out. Countries are, they're large countries. So it's like US, Germany, Australia, et cetera. I'm not going to I'm not going to name them all here, but you have them in front of you. And this report goes through a whole bunch of indicators, looks at like equity risk premium, looks at bond prices, looks at a lot of stuff. But I'm going to pull out just a few of those points to quiz you on. All right. Okay. So the categories I'm going to quiz you on are as follows. Average annual return from 2009 to 2019 and 99 to 2019. Worst bear market and best bull market in history. Okay, so that's what I'm gonna I'm gonna quiz you on on those. You have the countries in front of you. So when you say in history, is that like the last hundred years for bear it's the, market? It's, it depends on the country. What's interesting here is they went through like a bunch of different sources based on country, and so some countries have forty years of data, and some countries yeah, have okay. four hundred years of data, right? So it depends on the country. But of those countries, which country has the best annual average annual return from 2009 to 2019? Uh, it's gotta be the U S baby. There you go. Yeah. Nailed it. Nailed it. Yeah. The, which this has, is which why you worst. should be scared about which the current the valuations. The worst, uh, I think it's my guess is the UK. No, no. You, once I, once I tell you, you'll be like, ah, but, uh, Spain is the worst. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the U S 12.77% Spain, negative 3.46%. Per year. Over that period of time. There were two of the countries that surprised me, I'd say just generally, were New Zealand and Denmark. So New Zealand is number two behind the US at 11.57%. Interesting. Denmark was 9.86% at third. Okay, how about this? From 99 to 2019. So now you're capturing those two S&P 500 drawdowns uh, that you mentioned during that period. What was number one, 1999, 2019? I'm, I'm looking through the list. How about Switzerland? Denmark. Denmark. Okay. Denmark's number one, 8.83%. And India, number two, 7.62%. And New Zealand, number three, 7.24%. Um, so, so interesting. Yeah. I mean, New Zealand, how many large companies make up that company? country's index i mean I have, to, I have to take a look but it's not big it's yeah certainly, that's it's certainly I, small. I feel like that's probably being driven by five good performers um that make up the majority of their uh index but interesting okay, okay. so we'll do worst bear market uh best bull and then i'll throw out a couple things that i found interesting all right worst bear market ever. of all those countries of all the countries which one had the worst bear market so i'm telling you the country or the size of the the length we'll, of the bear market. Little, little column A, then we'll get to column B right now. Just do the, do the country. I, I feel like Austria had a tough time. Uh, so I'm going to okay. go Austria. 
everyone's had a tough time. Let me, let me, throw, let me throw that down. <laughs> a um, real tough time, a yeah. historically bad tough time. What's, uh, what's, what's tough here is that the, it's like ancient is when this yeah. happened. But uh, so France was the worst. Negative 99.36%. Hey, at least they didn't go to zero. They came exactly. back. <laughs> this was back in the 18th century um, is, is when that happened. Oh, man. I didn't know we were going 18th century yeah. here. Uh, India India's number two, negative 92.95%. Now, third, we'll, we'll get a little, and this is back in the 17th century for India. We're, um, we're going to get more recent now. This goes back about 100 years ago. Number three was Germany. And negative 92.48%. Is that hyperinflation? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The 1920s, Germany was just like getting, uh, you know, obliterated. Obliterated? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Obliterated. Maybe both. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so, okay, now let's go to best bull market. Now, is there a period of time here? No, it's just, it's basically from trough to peak. What was the highest return? Whatever that I'm gonna was. make up a term months. here. It's like light years. I'm gonna say uh, two and a half Musk. You didn't get the joke. Elon. All right. Yeah. Um, let's say ten thousand uh, percent. No, so it's five thousand percent, and it was the the country that you said had was the worst there. Actually, uh, Austria. Austria. Well, Austria. no, that's because they had tough times before they rebounded. Exactly. I'm, I mean, I'm taking extra credit points for that. I think I got that one right. That's fair. That's fair. Many of these, as you would suspect, of the the best bulls are following some of the worst uh, yeah. bear markets. That's what you'd expect. There's one that didn't, which really surprised me. And to me, it's the it's kind of a symbol of um, of where expectations play in a stock market, right? And this was Italy. So. Italy, their best bull market was 1,877%. Yeah. And it happened during World War II. It was, it was during the 1940s. Italy's stock market went wild. And to me, that is a symbol. This didn't happen in Germany, right? It was a symbol of uh, Italy was basically like, we are going to take over the world. Our companies yeah. are, are bomb.com, right? They didn't know about .com, so maybe not. But that's the, I was so surprised like when I saw that, like how large that was. Uh, during that period of time so quite interesting it's just it's just optimism i mean well i I don't know i'd have to do more study on the history there but yeah that is fascinating because i remember templeton um in one of his books or something or maybe in one of his interviews he talked about how when he was making bets on u.s companies during world war ii they seemed like no-brainers as long as the U.S. won the war, but that was not a no, you know, like yep. that was a coin flip at some points. So that's interesting. I'm happy we don't have to invest with like super serious wars as the backdrop. Hopefully that continues. I fully agree. Fully agree. Yeah, I, I found uh, looking through these numbers to be interesting. Like there's more of a more digging. I think that would have to happen. But as I mentioned, there were some countries that I wouldn't have expected that kind of stood out to me, like New Zealand, Denmark. Australia was also quite interesting to me when it comes to the like pretty solid returns over long periods of time uh, and really solid bull markets exist as well. I mean, and obviously that the bears aren't great, but, but I want to dig some more into the, to the question you asked around New Zealand, also Denmark, also a small country. So like, I'm just really curious um, as to how that goes about Australia uh, has solid returns and doesn't have some of the, the same 
uh, drawdowns that are correlated with like rest of world necessarily. Like in 2000, like nothing happened in Australia. It just kind of kept going up. Yep. It was just, just pretty interesting. So I can't, this is one of those, I can't quite recommend that you read it because like, you know, well, let me test it. Pages. I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. take it to the next Nuggets game. I'm going to see if the person <laughs> next to me wants to read it and then I'll report back. Uh, but yeah, it's like 200 some pages, but, uh, but the numbers are, are kind of fascinating. Yeah, hips up if you're interested, um, and we'll we'll get it to you. It is really fascinating stuff, uh, for sure. But it's there's so much information here, and relating stuff that happened in 1815 to today um, is sometimes challenging. Yeah, I'll ask one more question from this: United States worst bear market. You can probably guess when it was. What mm-hmm. was it? Oh, so depression, I'm going to say 29 to 34 or thereabouts. And what are we down? 70%? 86.16%. Man, have fun living through that. That's why when I uh, provide, that was, I, I won't say provide investment cancel. I say talk investing with folks that still remember that. They're still pretty skittish about owning equities because going down 86 percent is tough to bear i i feel like i've been through a few 50s and it really really sucks but i can uh, definitely make it to the other side uh, 86 would be very very tough when you just lose hope right is the question yeah right, right? um i mean 86 percent because you can see where maybe you go all right 25 percent that's a hit or like 10 percent correction okay 20 percent mm-hmm. we're now in a bear market it happens right as we discussed yeah. Fifty percent. I think you start to go like I have half, just mathematically. Yeah. I have half of what I had. Like that's a that's that's when I think that's probably when it's felt the most. When you get to seventy percent, you're like I don't have any of what I had before. Like I think that's when that feeling starts to happen. Eighty percent. It's years, years well, wiped off. Right. Yeah, this doesn't happen. Like the most recent crash that down twenty ish or thirty ish percent, um, whatever it was that happened last year with COVID stuff all happened so quickly and then it started to rebound immediately that like Mm -hmm. your sleepless nights were very minimal. This is five straight years of, you know, Oh, it went down 25% last year. Oh, but next year's going to be better. And then next year it continues to go down. And then the year after that, it continues to go down. You're like, man, it would take some courage and fortitude to invest in 34 when things have been down 86%. Agreed. And it, but if you do it right, you're set for life right there. I mean, and, and it's a, it's like continuous hits. Like when I was looking, I don't remember exactly what the, what the U S one looked like here, but when I was looking at Germany in the 1920s, it wasn't like a 1921 to 1924, it dropped and like, and then it started coming back. Like it wasn't that smooth. It was like seven months in 1921 down 90%. Then yeah. like, then it, it goes up 40%. And then down 80%, like, it, and then up and then down. It was just continually every, like, that's a, that's a beating, right? It gets rough. It gets real rough. Can I was, end the show with a quote from Benjamin Graham that will piss you off? It won't piss my, you off. My, my pleasure. <laughs> People who habitually purchase common stocks at more than 20 times their average earnings are likely to lose considerable money in the long run. Say what you need to say. <laughs> Should we go through your portfolio and look at some PE <laughs> Stoogles? Should we? Yeah. Should we go through? It? I, I, I can't disagree with that fundamentally. 
and it's not necessarily true, right? I well, mean, but I, think, I mean, the I think momentum that, that's the whole side. Thing. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? I know. I mean, like you could. There's probably an equivalent that there is. I'm sure an equivalent that you could state on the the value side, like people that continually buy stocks that are uh, whatever. I don't know what it might be. You're probably also likely to lose money because. But there's a if you only use that as like your, your only indicator, right? Like if you don't look at the debt that they have, if you don't look at the cash, yeah, they yeah, have, true. If you don't, right? True. Um, but it's an oversimplification. But it, yeah. yeah, but it's but but it's probably more true on on the side that Benjamin Graham stated. I was looking at Nvidia, right? Uh, just this morning, yeah. flipping through my Nvidia, just feeling good about myself, and uh, no, just getting a that, confidence boost. Yeah, exactly. Just a little, just a little confidence boost for the AM. But uh, we we've talked about a version of this with some other stocks before. But when uh, because I like to I don't actually like this, but I do it just because it, it's what comes out of my mouth is I frighten people when I tell them what's about to happen to their stock. Um, <laughs> like um, and so uh, and so I'm, you know, with NVIDIA, the thing I was looking at this morning is I was like, hmm, what does NVIDIA look like when it drops 80 percent? Because that doesn't yeah. seem wild. Like if, if yeah. we have a crash, NVIDIA's risen so much, like it doesn't seem wild to me that it drops 80 percent. Do you know what NVIDIA looks like? If it drops 80%. I mean, I'm guessing the PE is like 25. Not even, not even talking about gym okay. class. I'm not talking about PE. What I'm talking about here is I'm talking about NVIDIA going back to its price in February of 2020. Yeah. See, there you go. And like that to me is where I go. It's not that wild. Like NVIDIA dropping 80%. In February of 2020, I was holding NVIDIA. February 2020. Yeah. I was like, this might be overvalued. <laughs> and, <laughs> like, <laughs> and now... Right. Um, but the one thing it does is like now you have what happens is you have time, right, to generate like you, it's a stronger business. You build more profit, but then you're a few years later. So now it drops 80 percent. And when it's 80 percent drop, let's call it in a year and a half. It's at February 2020 prices with February, you know, 2024 business. I mean, with uh, certain, like not, not yeah. every company is like that. I'm saying with like an NVIDIA, sure, I think sure. is actually a very strong organization that is fluffed up to the moon right some companies are fluffed up to the moon like rivian that have no business and so like that's different when that drops 80 percent. but anyway that's my soapbox sorry i i put my soapbox on benjamin graham's soapbox which is real rude and stood on it so i apologize benjamin it's all right he doesn't care about you <laughs> neither he nor jack dorsey <laughs> he's not yeah he's not really bothered all right i want to end maybe uh with don't buy shares in the Green Bay Packers if you think they're actual ownership of a company. Let me read you a quote. So for those who don't know, the Packers have issued shares of their organization uh, five times. And currently you can buy, or I think they're going to issue in 2022 to try and uh, finance a stadium expansion. I say finance, it's not finance. Uh, they're looking for donations because... If you give them $300 to own a share of the uh, football team, here's what you get. The shares have no financial value and can't be resold. Shareholders of the Green Bay franchise don't get paid dividends. The stock doesn't appreciate in value and isn't transferable. Sounds like a deal, right, Douglas? Where do I sign up? I mean, I don't know why this bothers me because it really shouldn't. Because it's just, they're just trying to get fans to give them money. But I don't know why they don't just call it donations, because that's all it is. They're calling this ownership of the organization is an absolute joke. 
It's product marketing. You got to get the product marketing in there. Right. I guess, but how come the SEC isn't on? I mean, because they just told like, you, like they divulged everything. Because it's completely everything. worthless. Yeah. I mean, I own the New York Knicks, which is Madison Square Garden, and there's a piece of the Rangers in there, and that's an actual stock with actual voting rights. Now they don't pay dividends, but that's okay. Like, but the market cap fluctuates, and it, it's fully liquid. I don't was get. That? I just don't get this investment. Was it AMC earlier this year who released something yeah. that said very? It was very similar to what the Green yeah. Bay Packers said in, the, in their release, except it was worse. They said uh, the the stock's overvalued and we expect it to go down and possibly go to zero. They didn't even yeah, say so, possibly. They said so like, I mean, don't invest unless you want to lose your capital, is what AMC said. Isn't that kind of what the Green Bay Packers are saying? Yes. Well, no, they're just. I don't know. Maybe Ken okay. Griffin will just buy him. It'll all be good. <laughs> all right. Uh, please reach out with your listener mail, skippydougals at gmail.com. We're at skippydougals on Twitter. Uh, always love when you hit us up. Skippyanddougals.substack.com if you want to take a read through our literature and rate and review the podcast brings more people in. Thanks, guys. Thanks.